Welcome to the OV Build podcast, Building to Boss. I'm Casey Renner, VP of Executive Networks here at OpenView. This month, we're releasing a special mini-series with female leaders in the enterprise SaaS industry who know the path to leadership is challenging, but aren't willing to let that stop them from building something great. Today, we hear from Rashida Hodge, VP of Microsoft Azure Data and AI Customer Success, where she's leading a cross-functional team responsible for helping customers leverage and consume Microsoft data and AI solutions. Until recently, Rashida was at IBM for almost two decades in go-to-market strategy and business roles. In today's episode, we unpack her career trajectory at IBM, how she thinks about success and significance, and what she sees for the future of AI. All of that and more in this episode of the Build mini-series, Building to Boss. Let's dive in with Rashida Hodge. Rashida, thank you so much for joining us on the OV Build podcast. Super excited to talk, you know, shop and, you know, starting a new role after 18 years at one company and, you know, the awesome career trajectory you've had. So thank you for being here today. No, thank you so much. It's really my pleasure. And I appreciate you having me. Of course. Of course. I always love chatting with you. So this is like the weekly walk on steroids. Like <laughs> is mutual. We just have to figure out a way to get on the beach one day. I think between like, you know, you spending so much time in St. Thomas and me being in Florida now, like there's, there's nothing but hope for us to like get on a beach and sip a frozen cocktail. So I think we can definitely, make, I'll just come to St. Thomas next time you're there. I think that's, that's problem solved. Awesome. So uh, while I could talk about beaching and cocktailing all day, I don't know if our listeners would love that as much unless they're doing it with us. So tell us a little bit about your role now and, you know, your career trajectory at IBM and now onto Microsoft. Yeah, sure. So I just recently took on a new role at Microsoft, leading customer success for the Azure data and AI team. And I am super excited about the role, given it's really a cross-functional team of deep technical expertise and customer success managers that are really aligned to partner and collaborate with clients and really helping them uh, get a delightful customer experience by leveraging and consuming our data and AI solutions. So for me, I like to say it's it's truly my jam. It's my jam of one, continuing to live in the data and AI space, but doing what I love to do also by enabling the success of our customers. So there's no better job in the world. Yeah. You guys just got to combine all of them into one. I love that. So what was your career trajectory at IBM? I mean, you were there for 18 years. So we were just joking. It's like you were in elementary school, middle school, and then high school. And now you've graduated onto college at at Microsoft. You've had so many awesome roles too at IBM. So I'd love to just hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. And it's interesting because many times I get sometimes this crazy look from people when I tell them that I was at IBM for 18 years. (laughs) But my experience has been so unique, very rewarding, and, and frankly, thrilling, to be honest. I like to describe my career as a T-shaped career. Over the last you know, decade, two decades or so, I've built technical depth across multiple technologies from hardware, software to services. But then also I built breadth from a functional standpoint. So from leading development teams, technical delivery teams, global operations, offering management, and sales transformation. And these experiences really provided me with an opportunity to have a holistic perspective of the business and service of the customer. And I think that has truly prepared me for the role that I'm leading 
in customer success, you know, now at Microsoft, because my new role at Microsoft is really a natural extension of the work I've already done in the past, which is really around helping clients adapt and gain tremendous benefit from technology. And what I think is great is now I have the opportunity to go to and do this, you know, with Microsoft, you know, working for a company that, you know, is really focused on helping clients solve challenging problems, if you will, for the benefit of making a difference in the world. Yeah. And I have to ask for sort of my own sanity and clarity. So obviously, you know, Azure thinking that your are your customers are, you know, the, the businesses who are, are running on Azure cloud. Is that correct? Well, my customers are those individuals that are leveraging our data and AI solution oh, within on the okay. Azure cloud. Got it. Okay. Lots of move parts. And then, uh, so on this, obviously CS at Microsoft, I imagine looks very different than CS at an early stage startup company, which <laughs> OpenView deals so much with, but where does that sit within the organization? Do you report into the CRO? Is there, you know, head of CS, a chief customer officer? That's a really good question. And I don't think I probably can articulate it in the best way for the listeners. That's okay. I was also just me being like, oh, I'm just curious. So what was it like to build a startup ecosystem within IBM when you moved to the software side of the business? So I would say, first of all, I always tell people that I felt each day like I was a kid in a candy store, literally. I mean, amazing technology with tremendous benefit that we're providing to clients. And I had the opportunity to help those clients figure out what to do with the technology, how to scale the technology and to get outcomes from it. But it was a roller coaster ride, truly a roller coaster. It's like being in Six Flags. It was hard, but it was fun. It was transformative, but it was one of the most meaningful and fulfilling stints within my career. Because I had an opportunity in that moment to build something from the ground up. There was no script. There was no blueprint. There was no framework. There was a vision and there was amazing technology. And together with my team and colleagues, we had to figure out how to get this to clients, how to ensure that they're getting benefit from it. And we're solving the most pressing societal challenges with the technology. And so for me, I always say that I'm so glad that when I heard Mark and Dreesen say software is eating the world, that I didn't just read it, but I read it. I took it to heart and I found my way to that side of the business because for the first probably about 10 years of my career, I was on the hardware operational side of the business. And I took that shift after reading an article about just the rise of software to say, huh, I don't have any software experience yet, but I need to go make sure I do. And it was the best decision ever. That's going to say, yeah, because you wouldn't be where you are today without it. Exactly. I feel like that's also a great sort of thing for people to remember that it's never too late. doesn't matter how long you've been at a company or what you've done. Like it's not too late to make a pivot either. Like you were like, I need to go do this. I need this experience and went to, went to go do that. So it's never too late. It's never too late. And I think what's interesting is I've always considered myself a a learner and someone that can upscale and rescale myself. And you know, moving to Microsoft now, they're all about being a learn it all versus a know it all. And so I just think it's so fitting with my personality and quite frankly with you know the career moves and shifts that I've made because 
And I've sort of been in a continuous learning mode every two to three years. I'm learning something new, whether it's a function or it is an area of the business or it's a different technology. So I'm really excited to shift over into that culture that is foundationally based on that. That's amazing. So I guess in two years, we'll come back and do a check-in on this podcast of what you've learned or what, you know, what you've pivoted to two years in. Let's let's set a date. (laughs) I'm done. 20, what is that? 2023. It's on, on the beach. There we go. We've, we've figured it out. (laughs) All right. So we've talked a lot about this too, uh, you and I, but you know, you grew up in St. Thomas and you've mentioned, you know, what an impact that had on your career. So what was that like growing up in St. Thomas and how has that shaped where you are today? So there's so many things from my career and upbringing that has shaped my career. I, I think I'll focus on maybe two in particular. I think one is sort of that notion of respect for the person, not the title. In our small community, we all grew up together. We strolled through each other's houses. We ate from our neighbor's cabinet. Some had more, some had less. But it was never something we focused on. You know, instead we focused on who's your mother? Who's your father? By the way, we might be related to each other. (laughs) (laughs) And if I'm an adult, you know, they felt, okay, I'm an adult. I have the right to discipline you. So that's the community that I grew up in. And I think with that, my parents always reminded me that at the core of the titles and the roles we play in life, our main role in life is to be human and to treat others as such. And that no one is more superior than the other. So that entire notion of you respect the person, not the title, not the hierarchy is something that has played a significant role in terms of how I approach my career and how I deal and interact with others across the business. Yeah, that's, I feel like I just got chills you saying that, but so simple, but such like, I feel like main role in life to be human, like that are something that most people seemingly don't know how to do that. And just sort of treat others as you have to be treated. Yeah. So that's it's like not that difficult, but you would think. Yeah. A simple concept that is really powerful. Yeah. And I would say the second thing is this notion of learning how to pause. We are a culture that we know how to pace ourselves through life. Our culture is it's a no-nonsense culture, but we also have been taught to pull back when we need to rest and really to enjoy the pleasures of life. I mean, my mom in particular, you know, she taught me that it's really important to extract meaning, not just from work and external accomplishments, but from the internal, let's call it peace, if you will, that's derived from just recharging and connecting with loved ones. And Not to get sidetracked, but for me personally, our annual carnival festivities has always been sort of my recharge. And, you know, during this time of year, we would eat and drink and party in the streets for an entire week. And it's the best time of year for me. And honestly, I think I need a carnival right now. Yeah. And given everything that's been going on with COVID, that has been canceled. But you know, in typical Caribbean fashion, I mean, you've had many family living room and backyard jams, you know, mm-hmm. listening to carnival and, and soca artists. But I think this concept of, you know, learning how to pause and, you know, recharging and connecting, you know, with loved ones, I think is so important. And I think that it's a notion that has really come to surface for many people during mm-hmm. the pandemic as well. Oh my gosh. Yes. Just, I mean, even, you know, you getting to be in St. Thomas for a period of time too, that I'm sure you wouldn't have otherwise been able to, if you were still in San Francisco and there was no pandemic. 
Exactly. So, you know, so I, I completely get that. How would you say to, I mean, you, we talked, you just sort of mentioned how it, your upbringing has played a role in sort of who you are today as, you know, in, a, in your career, but as a leader too, I mean, I imagine some of what you said, you know, certainly has impacted the leadership style that you have too. Yeah, of course. I mean, my leadership style really is a lot of influence from my mother. I, I tell people that I am because of my mother, full stop, period. And, you know, my mother taught me this concept of building from your circumstances. And she was a teen mom and she refused to allow her circumstances as a teen mom to stop her from rising and excelling and pushing through. You know, she was someone who really did not believe in excuses of any kind. So in my career, I've learned how to sort of work with what I have and just build from it. You know, I, I like to say a lot of times there's no point in humming and hiring about what's not present or what you could have or should have had, but just take the resources that are present and finesse them into your greatness. And I think additionally, the second thing in terms of my leadership, I would say in that regard that I really owe to my mom is, you know, this notion of being unapologetically tough. I mean, anyone who has worked with me tells you that I set high bars and I have high expectations because I believe the work we do has the opportunity to have high rewards, both personally and professionally. But it's also due to living through my mother's tough love, right? My mom always led with strength and, but also at the same time, she also sort of led with love, right? She was someone that will set you straight. She will not be a mincer of words. But she also made sure that you knew that she deeply cared and supported you. And my leadership style follows in that same vein. I strongly believe in being a truth teller and leading through honesty and truth while providing direct perspectives and feedback. And sometimes that leads to uncomfortable conversations. But for me, the ultimate goal is always growth and development of the person. Yep. One, you can't do that without being able to have uncomfortable conversations because how would you ever deliver feedback for people to be able to grow? So that makes a lot of sense. When you think about the, the difference between success and significance, what's your take on that? How do you think about that? So for me, success is about the choices and decisions that you make for yourself and for your benefit, whereas significance is about choosing a life that benefits others. And for me, this is really important. Um, you know, I really want to live a life of significance. You know, how can I help someone else? And it's always been my hope that you know, as individuals, I think that the fame we seek shouldn't be about things and titles, but it should be first in how we treat others, you know, in our relationships, in our communities, in our families. And, you know, I think that's what we all should be remembered by. Yes. Yep, definitely. All right. So I want to pivot a little bit to, you know, inclusivity and diversity environments, especially in tech. And you're very vocal about the importance of those two things. Tell us why. So back to this point, actually, about success and significance, um, a much bigger part of establishing my significance is about showing up. And so it has called me to be present and take spaces in environments where I may be the only one who looks like me and 
I've got to bust down doors of bias and prejudice and discrimination that were, quite frankly, meant to stop me from pursuing my dreams. So I'm vocal because I want others to know that we belong in these spaces and we are worthy of having these experiences. Plus, I truly believe that when you are given the platform or you have the captured audience, you have to speak for those who may be less empowered to do so. Yeah. It is your right as a leader. You have to lead with that passion and in that regard. And because I think it's so important that we set that example and we show others that, quite frankly, where they are is where they belong in the truth of who they are. But if we're not vocal and in showing that, they won't see it and they won't believe it. That makes sense. I also, you know, completely, you know, you're saying all these these amazing things. And I think one thing I, I want to make sure we point out is here is you were recently honored by Forbes 40 under 40 as well, which is just so impressive. That's just my quick, my quick interlude. But I wanted to make sure every one of our listeners knows that as you're saying all these wonderful things. No problem. It was actually Fortune 40 under 40. Fortune 40 under 40. I don't want Fortune and Forbes to get upset with us. Okay. You <laughs> did do an interview with Forbes though. I did. I did. Yes. Okay. See all those, all those fancy Fs. For, <laughs> you're just in too many impressive publications. That's what it is. And now you're on the OV Build podcast. So this is it's like the trifecta, Forbes, Fortune, and the, uh, the Build podcast. So you're also vocal, you know, so you're saying about uh, being a voice for, you know, those who might not have a voice at the table, but you're also very vocal about investing in women. And, you know, I know you're involved with Girls Inc. and the How Women Invest Fund. What does your involvement in that look like? How did you first get involved? And how can others get involved? So... You know, just like tech, just like we talked about, we, as in, you know, Black women, brown women, you know, we're not representing these spaces. So for me, it was important to be there, to have a seat at the table, because I believe engaging in this process will broaden the image of what a venture capitalist looks like. Mm-hmm. And it allows us to participate in expanding the options for wealth generation. I mean, these were things that I didn't learn growing up. My parents didn't have exposure to. Mm-hmm. And so me having exposure to it, me having a seat at the table opens up the opportunity for certainly wealth generation for myself. But again, showing someone that looks like me that they can be in those spaces as well. Yeah. And I joined... There are many different opportunities and funds that are out there. I chose to join the How Women Lead Fund as they were kicking this off because I really like the fact that, you know, they took a stance on, you know, helping women, you know, build wealth, not just by writing a check or participating, but also by providing education on, you know, what I consider sort of this black box of investing. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much from that process and they educating me on what it is to be an investor and how the process works, everything from the administration to all of the details. And I also appreciated the fact that they helped to democratize the process by lowering the minimum contribution to participate. In many cases, for a lot of these funds, the minimum check size is large. It could be a million dollars. It could be 500K, $250,000. And, you know, they took the opportunity to say, we want, you know, everyone that wants to participate 
to be a part of this. And we're going to lower that commitment so that we can truly get a diverse and inclusive participation. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, that's great. It's like, just get more people involved and then it creates a larger community and hopefully, you know, move the needle a little bit. And if you ever need some more uh, venture capital, then that can be your next career, venture capital. Hey. Call us up at OpenView. You don't know. <laughs> Two years. We'll see where you are. <laughs> yeah, let's pencil that in. We got a lot. We have a lot. We got a lot to talk about in two years. And the the one other thing I, I want to ask you about is when you were at your alma mater, NC State, um, you founded the Real Hope for Next Gen Engineers Endowment to support women and minorities in engineering, and certainly that ties in. But how did you go about starting that? What did that process look like? Well, I want to go back a second because you'd asked me about Girls Inc. Oh, yes. And I'm a big, big, big fan. I love Girls Inc. And so for all the listeners out there, if you don't know about it, you've got to learn about it. And one of the reasons why I love it so much is because I always say I would not be where I am without support. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the more you're able to have encouragement from others, from people that are around you, the more successful you will become. And so my participation in Girls Inc. is really about me making investments in others because people made investments in me. And Girls Inc.'s motto is be strong, be smart, be bold. And I think that's so amazing because if I look at my journey as a woman in tech, I wouldn't say that when I started my journey I felt strong, I felt smart, and I felt bold. It took me a journey to be able to get there and to have that film of confidence. So being able to support girls at a young age so that they can learn and get acclimated much faster and not have maybe the imposter syndrome that I had and really come into the workforce or go into college with that film of confidence of being strong, smart, and bold is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Makes total sense. And how did you, you I didn't even ask you obviously, you know, grew up in St. Thomas, but how did you get to NC State? You said, you know, you had a lot of support and and certainly came from your family, but you know, how did it, and certainly, you know, where you were at at NC State and got a a very impressive degree as well. So how did you get there with a degree in industrial engineering? (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about that support that got you there. Yeah, no, I mean, People are thinking I'm going to have a bias for my mom, but you know, I always say that, you know, my mom always believed in education and she gave me the opportunity to explore. So, you know, I read a book that talked about engineers and an engineer solving a problem. And I went to my mom and I said, I want to be an engineer. And she said, okay, that sounds interesting. What is an engineer? And I didn't really have an answer. I just said, yeah. all the problem in this book. Yeah. <laughs> And my mom said, that's not a good answer. And she says, well, I don't know what an engineer is either. So let's go find out together. And, you know, long story short, me and my mom, we went, we found out together. I found this program at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, that was a summer program for high school students where you were able to get an overview of all the different engineering disciplines and get a perspective of the day in the life of an engineer. And out of that program, I found out about industrial engineering. And I said, this is what I want to do. I said, because I really like that the interaction between solving any type of engineering problem, but also the connection of the process and the connection of the human being, right? Mm -hmm. Which industrial engineering is all about. And so came out of that program and said, 
industrial engineering is it. And then I started looking up the top engineering schools or industrial engineering specifically. And kind of two reasons. One, I was able to get a full scholarship to go to North Carolina State University University through local scholarships with a mixture of local scholarships from the Virgin Islands and the College of Engineering Endowment Scholarship. And then also, no offense, it was one of the warmer (laughs) climates of schools on the list. (laughs) So it was warmer climate, you know, going to school debt-free was a perfect combination. I love that. It was still a little, I mean, and that's, that's where you are now. And it's still compared to St. Thomas, quite chilly, I imagine. too. So I can only imagine where the other ones were, if that was the warmest, one of the warmer of them. Well, that leads me to, it kind of ties in then to, to my next question about the endowment that you founded at NC State. Was that sort of just inspiration behind, you know, were you the only you know, woman in your industrial engineering class? Were you, you know, the only black woman in the class? Like, what was the inspiration? How did you decide to found this? So the inspiration was, you know, sort of twofold, if you will. I think, you know, one, I, just, I feel like I'm just truly fortunate, right? Never in my life would I have imagined the life I have today and the opportunities that have been placed before me. You know, I tell people that I was counted out at birth, but here I am. And so I think that there's been so many people that have placed a significant role in creating the fabric of who I am. And because of that, I carry a deep sense of gratitude and sort of this unshakable commitment to giving back because I am where I am because people gave to me. And Mm -hmm. so gratitude is one. The second is I wanted to continue to expand the image of what a donor and a philanthropist looks like. And when I would go to meet donors for the annual endowment women, the annual endowment events, I rarely saw people that looked like me. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted that when, you know, young awardees of these scholarships attend that endowment dinner, that in the future, they see more and more Black women, Black men, brown women, brown men, right? So that they know that at some point, they will also have the capacity to give as well. I think, especially for Black women, we give so much to our communities. We give so much to culture. We give so much to our society. But it's like people don't think of us as philanthropists. We don't even think about ourselves as philanthropists. So that whole view of I want to continue to expand and change that image back to our early point of we belong in these spaces. This Mm -hmm. was also a space where I felt it was important for us to show up and known that we belong, but it started out with gratitude. I'm, I'm so grateful for, you know, being able to go to college without Mm -hmm. having student debt and someone making the sacrifice to give that opportunity to me. Yeah. Rashida Hodge, you are definitely a trailblazer. That is for sure. <laughs> I am so happy I know you. Uh, you are awesome. All right. So, it is mutual, my oh, dear. Oh, thank you. I, I'm sure if you were interviewing me, my, my answers would be very much less impressive, but I'm just, I'm just grateful to be in your presence. You're just so wonderful. All right. I, I would like to pivot to AI. 
And, you know, just what advice do you, I mean, I have a few questions, like obviously the, the change in AI that you've seen in your career, uh, you know, and, and what have you seen change? What stayed the same? I mean, sort of just the evolution of AI and the time, but also, you know, if future AI leaders, what advice do you have for them? People looking to get into artificial intelligence as they come out of school. You know, one of the things I would say is all technology can and should be used for the good and the betterment of society. And, you know, I have this personal belief that technology can never replace the nuance and elegance of human connection. And I mean, obviously, we've seen that with COVID and it's been reinforced as much as we love Teams and Zoom and WebEx and Hangout. We realize how much we love people and interact with people. And so I think that's really important. And I think that especially with technologies like AI, I think future leaders working in this space should continue to keep that at the forefront. And so, you know, be patient, be outcome focused. Don't forget the why of what you're doing and do good. I love that. I feel like just do good and be a good human is sort of like what's, I feel like I can definitely, like as you've answered these questions, that's just like such, that's just who you are. I can see at least through everything that you do, which again, you think would be easier than it is for a lot of people. <laughs> Just... Exactly. It's just, I think sometimes we're, we think we're robots, right? And we're, yeah. you know, and I struggle sometimes with these words like, you know, heroes and sheroes. And, but I think in the foundation, you know, we're human beings. And I think if we start there, mm-hmm. I think it'll change how our perspectives and it'll ground us in the decisions that we make and the path we follow. Yep. Amen to that. What trends do you see for AI moving forward? And also, you know, subsequently, what trends do you see for CS moving forward? Well, I think the the trends that, you know, I see for AI falls along that line of how do we continue to scale the technology? How do we productionize it, if you will? You know, I've said in the past that you know, AI will be, become the new IT. Think about in when sort of the role of IT developer, the role of the CIO developed, that wasn't always in place, right? But the advent of technology, the maturity of technology and the scale of technology, you know, forced us to have, you know, massive structures to be able to support our IT operations. I see AI moving in that direction. It's not going to be a thing. It's not going to be a lab. It's not going to just be features and functions. It's going to truly transform how we operate. I think it's going to truly transform, you know, our structure and and how we support clients. And, you know, I think clients as well will, you know, evolve, you know, their support of these structures moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yep. That makes sense. And similarly for, you know, for customer success, as you look out at your, you know, six months, 10 months, you know, what you've wanted to have done in a year, what do you see, especially, you know, sort of business has changed in the past year. So how does that influence, you know, you going into your role as a CS leader? Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, you know, my goal is that making sure that clients are using these technologies for the right purpose, they're using them in the right instances and they're going to benefit from this. I want my clients to be delighted with these solutions. I want us to infiltrate, you know, their business and for it to be really adopted at scale. Yep. 
That makes sense. All right. I think I might know the answers to some of the last five questions that I have for you, but I'm still going to have, I'm going to have you answer them and see if I got them correct. Who is your female role model? (laughs) I think I know the answer to this one. My mom. Your mom. Your mom sounds great. I want to meet your mom. We should have her on the podcast next time. (laughs) (laughs) Two years. She's going to be on it. What is the favorite newsletter that you subscribe to? Oh, that's a tough one. I do like the Broad Street newsletter that Fortune sends out. Okay. Got it. Well, and you are unfortunately 40 under 40. So it makes sense. That must have been great too when you saw yourself on the Fortune newsletter. Oh my God. I think my house went into straight pandemonium. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, Fortune and Rashida in the same sentence. What up? <laughs> you know, think about the celebrations also in your family sound fantastic. So I can only imagine how fun that was for you. And what is one thing you can't live without? The beach. The beach. Yes. Um, If you weren't in your current role, what do you think you would be doing right now? Or what would you want to be doing? Well, maybe not what would you want to, but doing what you want. Laying on the beach. (laughs) A professional beach goer, which is Rashida's dream job. Actually, Actually, I would switch the other sentence what's one thing I can't live without is actually music. Music. Okay. What's your, like, what's your go-to jams? Soca music. I love the genre Soka. of soca music. It's a bit okay. dark Caribbean. Okay. But I may, I'll send you a couple of tunes so you can. Please do. Familiar. We can like interlay them into the podcast. I actually don't even know if that's a thing, but I have not, I don't think I've heard much. So I would definitely be down. It sounds like good, like listen while you work music too. And then an adjective somebody on your team would use to describe you. Do you think? I would say determined. Determined. I love that. All right. Well, Rashida, thank you so much for joining me and and telling us about all the great work you've done and, and your amazing career. And like I said, we're just so lucky to have you join us on this podcast. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure and it has been an honor and it is always good jamming with you. So thank <laughs> you for inviting me again. You're welcome. Insert soca music now. <laughs> Get our jam on. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the OV Build podcast, Building to Boss. We hope you learned as much as we did. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to stay up to date with all the new episodes. If you're looking for more open view content, follow me, Casey Renner, on LinkedIn. See you next time here on OV Build.